Welcome back to the DC Yoga Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Parkinson, and today in the studio we have Ariel Foster. Uh, Ariel Foster is a doctor of physical therapy, yoga teacher since 2001, founder of yogaanatomyacademy.com, and creator of the yoga journal online course, Fascia Release for Yoga. Ariel's physical therapy practice in Washington, D.C. is founded upon treating the whole person. She uses hands-on manual therapy techniques along with precise targeted strength training, myofascial release, and neuromuscular reintegration to achieve optimal recovery for patients. Her interdisciplinary yoga teaching, workshops, and retreats are grounded in the compassionate approach of Kripalu Yoga and her deep understanding of neuromusculoskeletal well-being from working with thousands of patients. Ariel has completed yoga teacher trainings in Kripalu, Anusara, therapeutics, hatha yoga, and the tradition of Madhya Azrati. Yes, we got it. Yoga works. She also writes for Yoga Journal, serves as anatomy faculty for 90monkeys.com, and for various yoga teacher trainings, and is ambassador for Kira Grace Clothing, and has graced the cover of Yoga Journal Australia in July of 2018. Welcome, Ariel. How are you doing today? I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Thanks. Um, so the kind of the way we usually lead this off is, um, and maybe sort of a, an embarrassing way in a lot of, in a lot of senses. Do you remember your, the first yoga class you ever took? Okay. So my story is weird because okay. my grandmother was teaching yoga slash, you know, she might've called it stretching in the eighties, but she had studied with, um, with Lilius Folin. She had also studied with a woman named Sylvie in my tiny town in Virginia where I grew up and she was teaching her like main job was as a teacher's aide in the elementary school where I went to school and then after school she would teach these like stretching classes so this is in the 80s so I would go to those because free babysitting Mm -hmm. so I was going to my grandmother's yoga classes as a five-year-old wow yeah so um I wouldn't say it was embarrassing. It was just like, you know, a different way of being with a family member. Yeah, it was like the thing you do with grandma. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's so cool. Yeah. It was kind of fun because, you know, she'd put me in the front and then she'd, you know, probably like um, be like, look at how my granddaughter is so perfect or something. And then everybody would. Yeah. So I, I would feel special. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um when did so how long did you do that for like when did it stop becoming daycare and more more becoming like oh this is like a thing <laughs> like yeah so my family uh, my nuclear family moved away when i was wrapping up elementary school and i had a couple years where there wasn't anything formally called yoga in my life but literally just like three years because i remember um eighth grade I started taking music lessons, and I, my teacher, who I love dearly, uh, Carlos Posey, he um, has now passed, but he became like a family member to me, and he was also a yoga teacher. He had come to the States for a kidney transplant, and he had been involved with Yogaville, and I think he is one of the, the longer, if not one of the longest, like top 10% of people who survived after kidney transplant, like on the same kidney, that is. I'm sure mm-hmm. others have lived very full lives, maybe having to get a kidney after 20 years, anyone. But um, yeah, he lived for more than 25 years, I believe, on, on his third kidney transplant. And I think part of that was because he was so deep into the, I think it's the integral 
or Sachidananda's yoga mm-hmm. philosophy at, at Yogaville. Forgive me for not knowing what it is off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. So he, so I would go to his classes too. And where was that? Where was that? Where were you taking those classes? Richmond, Virginia. Richmond. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then, um, so I had quite a bit of exposure. I think I even got, I definitely even got a, like some PE credit for yoga classes when I was in high school because mm-hmm. of like weird charter school type stuff. And then in college, there was this really extraordinary teacher um, whose last name I'm forgetting, but her name was Lori, L-O-R-I, and she had studied at Kripalu. And I was like, okay, I have to get to Kripalu. And then it was a, this really strange thing that the year that I finished uh, college, that summer I started taking these like $5 classes at the nor- this Northampton gym, Northampton, Massachusetts. And I ended up, um, my, my teacher there was like, oh, you should do this teacher training with me. And at the end of the summer, I did it. I did this teacher training with her. Wow. And, and how old were you? 21. Wow. Uh, 22 maybe at the yeah. time. Yeah. So it's been almost, it's been 18 years for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, the 200 hour, that was at Kripalu or was that with, was that in, was that just with your teacher? Was that actually at Kripalu, that first one? No, that was at that time. Because Kripalu so in Massachusetts, right? It's mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I did the Kripalu one later gotcha. because I just loved it so, so, so much. And um, this one was with the, like, Sports Medicine Institute. It was, like, a convention that they were doing all these group fitness um, certifications. Yeah. So you you might even be familiar with that world. Like, this is, I've only done two of these. And it was, was like, 2001 and 2003. And after that, I had my 200-hour. But I was teaching with, like, a weekend-long certification. Wow. Yeah, but here's the thing. At that time, I was, there wasn't a lot of yoga. The 200-hour level of certification was fairly new, and it wasn't widely understood and adopted. Like, even studios were having people teach to the extent that studios existed that were just experienced teachers that didn't necessarily have the 200-hour. And I had actually done live-in, like, three live-in periods at Kripalu. So, after I did my weekend-long thing, I stayed at Kripalu either before or after for like two or three weeks as a volunteer. And so I kind of did my own self-study teacher training because I was living there, waking up in the morning, doing the 5.30 to 7.30 classes, going to chop vegetables or scrub toilets or whatever, mm-hmm. and then taking a noon class and then taking the 4 or 6 p.m. class. And in the meanwhile, there were talks on philosophy that we all got together as volunteers and like learned the yamas and the niyamas, et cetera, et cetera. So I was really, like, in in certain ways, completely unprepared, as we always are, but, like, very, very prepared in a way that maybe even people today are less well-roundedly mm-hmm. prepared. I mean, I literally, like, lived that yogic lifestyle. That's fantastic. That's mm-hmm. pretty much the perfect way to, to live a yoga experience, right? Mm-hmm. That full, long day of, you know, waking up and doing your yoga and then yeah. doing your karma yoga and then know learning and doing your you know your dharma talks and that sounds a fantastic experience sleeping in a dorm yeah (laughs) yeah can you you still do that at kripalu can you still do that so now at the time i think there was like an application fee of around i want to say like twenty dollars and then it became and you could do it uh, from one week to four weeks and there was another program that was a six month minimum and now i think you have to commit to at least six months if if they still have it that was the last time i checked but, yeah, I probably spent a total of two months there as a volunteer over the first couple of years of my yoga teacher training. 
in those like multi- in those like two to three week chunks of time mm-hmm. whenever I had time. Um, and then, so you knew kind of going into your first teacher training that you wanted to teach. Oh, I'd already been teaching. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, if you don't count that yeah. that little weekend thing, that little weekend thing, I didn't really know that I wanted to teach. Uh, but I did it anyway as a side hustle because, you know, I was making like $7 an hour as an intern mm-hmm. in D.C. And it's not like rents were that cheap even then. Right. Um, so what was sort of the impetus to teaching? Was it just to kind of make money on the side or was it something that you just, you, you, ha- you got the spark right away and you were like, okay. I got the spark, man. Yeah, I think I'm actually a a kind of a natural teacher. Um, I'm an older sister, so I don't mind being bossy and telling people what to do. (laughs) 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 I feel, uh, but anyway, I remember even being a kid and being in elementary school and looking up at my school teachers and being like, I could be a school teacher. Like, I want to do that. So I think I had that like like actual love of teaching, and I still notice that I have to rein myself in. Like, I could. I could be like on teacher mode all the time, and so I have to not do that sometimes. Yeah, I used to I used to get that a lot when I was when I was a little bit younger, not like teenage years, but when I graduated from law school, when I would get in conversations with yeah. people, and I realized now it was sort of like a backhanded compliment, but people would go, you know, you'd make a really good teacher. I sort of realized now that was sort of like the cue to like <laughs> you should stop talking now. <laughs> do you have any siblings? Yeah, no, I don't. So I'm, I'm an only child, so. I'm sort of used to being the the, the boss of my own universe, you yeah, know. You're the expert. <laughs> yeah. Let's just pause for a moment and recognize that you just said you have a law degree. Yeah. This is a very common thing in DC in the DC yoga world. We're on the DC Yoga podcast, so um, there are so many like extremely highly educated yoga teachers in DC. I just wanted to mm-hmm. give everybody a shout out no, and people in general. It's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can't. You know, I've done three yoga teacher trainings now and not a lot but in each one of them i've had at least one lawyer Mm -hmm. right you see them they're yeah dropouts yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so what were the first uh what were the first yoga classes like that you taught do you remember Mm -hmm. yeah so the so i i actually really love this subject because i um i'm part of some online forums like at facebook groups that are really diving into the complexities of more dogmatic approaches and more um, guru-centric approaches. And here's the things I really liked about Kripalu at that time. And it could have changed, and it was certainly different, you know, 10 years before. But in the early 2000s, Kripalu was very non-dogmatic. It was basically like you could, as long as you rolled out your mat, you were there doing yoga, as long as you're breathing. There was a lot of space, I think, within a pose to do what you need to do. So uh, it may or not have originated at Kripalu, but that term micro-movements was one that I first heard there. Like, I did not hear that in the Yogaville lineage. I did not hear that in the um, integral lineage. I heard that concept of, like, micro-movements, breathe and move the way you want to, get organically into your body, let out a big sigh, all those things. So I was doing some very teaching with some very um, very heavy on the cues for the like self-guided interoceptive type of approach. So like more of like how you should be feeling in the posture or where the energy should be or the action rather than put your foot here, put your knee there type yeah. of anatomical cues. Now I was always like super into those. So if I knew what I was saying or if I had a 
any ideas of what to say around the, the alignment, I would say it. But I, I think within that framework, I also gave, you know, gave people a lot of latitude. And I really appreciate that about the Kripalu tradition, uh, even though it's literally named after a single human being. Uh, um, it, and it has a, an inherent kind of reverence to that. I would say that the reverence is more towards the ultimate idea of compassion, which my understanding is this Swami Kripalu very much embodied, like a really cool compassion, like a kind of thing where you just look at somebody and you're like, oh, that's a, that's like a grandfatherly figure mm -hmm. or something along those lines. So, yeah, so I f really feel like Kripalu instilled that super compassionate approach. And I'm really glad I didn't have too much dogma or too much, you know, specificity wrapped up in it. Um, at the same time, I was always jealous of people who had more uh, vigorous backgrounds or were more vigorous yoga teachers than me. I was always intrigued and towing that line. And I think also this city, the population of the city definitely rewards people who teach more vigorous classes. So, um, yeah, always playing with that identity. And then I also fell in love on the side with vinyasa yoga, so I was incorporating that to the extent that mm -hmm. I um, wanted to. The first uh, the first kind of initiation I had into a Gopalo type style was, do you know Sarah Hippert by any chance? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, so when I first started taking yoga, I took uh, one of Sarah Hippert's class, Advita, um, and it was a power yoga class. And I walked into the class thinking it was going to be, you know, your typical DC power yoga class. And I remember, like, after the class, we didn't do a single sun salutation. Mm -hmm. like a single one mm -hmm. and yet it was like pretty much the most challenging physical class i could imagine like so many like one-legged balances mm -hmm. and just doing like moving slowly from one position to another on one leg and it was you know afterwards i thought yeah like that's the power yoga right there mm. like strength and like stability and you know we didn't we did not do chaturanga at yeah. the entire time and i was like wow that's really cool like i can do a class without doing like chaturanga yeah like who knew? <laughs> so you were hooked in through the vinyasa side then. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm I, sure there were many classes I did at Kripalu that we didn't do the sun salute or we did it in a very, very, very slow fashion, if yeah. at all. Yeah. I really, I really dig that about the, about the style. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us maybe a little bit more about the history of Kripalu? Do you remember anything about the founding of it? I mean, I think it was like yogaville no there was a guru who came over and um settled a community and then mm -hmm. basically built the community like a you know an ashram style like from there i'll tell you what i know that swami kripalu was a super popular guy in india in gujarat state and forgive me if i get any of these details wrong but gujarat state is correct so he was a popular guy he had a following one of his followers was an in i believe an engineer and this engineer moved to the United States. His name was Amrit Desai. He still exists, actually. And um, Amrit Desai founded, started teaching yoga, and either him or his the community that built up around him started the Kripalu Center. It was originally in, I believe, western Pennsylvania. And then they, in the early 80s, they had enough money to put together the purchase of a former Jesuit school. So this Jesuit like university or campus. institution campus was yeah. um, built in, I want to say the 1940s. So it's like this weird old, huge sprawling, uh, not particularly attractive building. And 
it's um but with like just the most amazing view like amazing and that was what they purchased and then they poured their heart into it and it was residential it was already residential in western pennsylvania and then it was residential up at up in western massachusetts so it's in the berkshires and it's a lovely lovely place and yeah i want to go back Berkshires are, are incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great place. And then I think the other really important piece of the Kripalu story that is pertinent to me being there in the early 2000s, in the early, I- approximately 1992, there was a huge fallout because this this um, person who had brought Kripalu yoga to the United States, Amrit Desai, he had also brought his the f- the person who's who it was named after, mm-hmm. Swami Kripalu, would come for a short residency from like not a short one i think it was like two years or something he came and stayed in the ashram in pennsylvania but um amrit desai it was found out he was asking everybody in this ashram like all these people in their 20s teenage years early 30s to be celibate unless married and to follow these other strict rules and it turned out that he although married was doing things that did not um, comply with celibacy with other ashram members. And so that was a reckoning that Kripalu went through and survived. And most of these communities did not survive and did not thrive in the way that Kripalu has thrived. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, whatever they did, they did something right. There was a deep level of honesty. There was a deep level of, I believe, you know, skepticism of putting any individual on too high of a pedestal. There was a deep questioning of this concept of brahmacharya, which is... um, one of the yamas and niyamas, so it's deep in yoga philosophy and brahmacharya is, is, is sometimes translated as celibacy. But I learned all of the yamas and niyamas with a, um, like an interpretive lens. So really, what does this mean for you? Where can you conserve your energy uh, w- in various aspects of life? And um, that is really nice rather than a school or an institution saying like, oh, in order to practice ahimsa nonviolence, you have to be vegan. Mm-hmm. In order to practice ahimsa nonviolence, you have to, you know, sweep the ground you walk on to free it of ants. Um, so it's a very not that there's anything wrong with those interpretations, it, but I felt very empowered from the conversations that we were having at Kripalu to make my own decisions. Yeah, it goes back to that non-dogmatic approach. Bingo. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, so what happened after you? So where were you teaching? Were you teaching in D.C. Yeah. at that time? Like when you when you got finished with that? I moved to D.C. in two thousand one. So yeah. Yeah. And where were you teaching when you came to D.C.? Uh, Sport and Health Tinseltown. Yeah. Uh, Third Power Fitness, which no longer exists. Studio D.C., which used to be Serenity, mm-hmm. uh, Studio Serenity. Uh, where else? Probably other places that I've forgotten. That's funny, that Sport and Health in Tenleytown, that's where I believe Mimi was there and Hawa was there. And there was like, like a lot of people who come on the show said like that's where, that's one of the places where they started teaching yoga, which I think is so cool. Yeah, Anara Lome was there. She was really high up in the Iyengar world. I don't know where she is now, but she was on the cover of Yoga Journal. Um, and there were two actually in Tenleytown, so I don't know how much I crossed paths with Mimi, but I remember for a while she was teaching Budokan at the other location. Mm-hmm. And... I did take a bunch of Budokan classes for like a couple months. I was pretty regular. And then, as you know, things change. (laughs) Schedules change. Schedules probably. Mm -hmm. What was, uh, give us a sense of kind of what the community or the yoga community was like back in the early 2000s. All right. I have a funny story. So there were so few yoga teachers 
that one, whenever I'd be like, uh, whenever someone would say, well, what do you do? Um, frankly, what I moved to DC for was to work on environmental issues. I was really passionate about environmental issues. I was really passionate about climate change, really passionate about climate justice and environmental justice. And um, I, I was always kind of jumping grant to grant, internship to internship, fellowship to fellowship. Like there was a, a lot of instability in that, kind of what I was considering my day job at the time. And so there were times where I was only teaching yoga. So sometimes I'd say, oh, I work for Greenpeace and I teach yoga. And sometimes I would just be like, well, I teach yoga. And a lot of times the, the um, reaction that I got from people was like, oh, I've never met a yoga teacher before. Excellent. And sometimes uh, it, was, it was like more gnarly, like, oh, you must be really flexible or <laughs> stupid stuff like that. So well, just um, imagine just imagine my life when I tell people I'm a yoga teacher. They go, you teach yoga? <laughs> I get that all the time. For the listeners. Yes. <laughs> Chris is tall, muscular, <laughs> rugged. That's right. <laughs> people take one look at me. They're like, you can't teach yoga. Like, it's like, all right. <laughs> we need to get rid of these uh, preconceptions, I think. Yeah. So, so yoga was still weird. And, uh, okay, I, I'm tempted to reveal his name, but I won't. I remember where I lived at the, uh, and still live. I, you know, I get off, I would get off at the Columbia Heights Metro, and it was just chain link fence for like a long block. And so I was always like, yeah, it was like a, little it was like a school bus, like repository or something. That's where they like, they're, they're, yeah, anyway, just gravel lots, yeah. really, and, and a homeless shelter. And so I would sling my yoga mat over my shoulder and just speed walk. I just thought, I'm on a mission, right? Because I didn't want anybody to mess with me. So I had this plan. And one day I'm walking down that street and I see this kind of handsome guy carrying a yoga mat. <laughs> I was single and I was like 22 years old. And I'm like, what? And nobody at that time had a yoga mat unless you were a yoga teacher. So I remember asking, like, are you a yoga teacher? Like, just out of the blue to this stranger on the street in kind of like a dark, <laughs> dark night with these gravel pits surrounding us. And he dissed me so hard. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know who he is <laughs> to this day. <laughs> really? He just yeah, ignored he you? he was a yoga teacher. He didn't ignore me, but he really was like, he shut me down. And it w but it was, but what's funny about that interaction is not my desperation right. <laughs> for companionship, although that's a little bit funny, but it was my, um, like my, the fact that yoga teachers were so rare that I was willing to jump way out of my comfort zone to ask somebody like, are you a yoga teacher? Because mm -hmm. there were so few of us, like there were probably 50 of us in the city at the time. Yeah. Um, and you know, maybe even in the greater DMV. And now I imagine there's like 5,000 plus, like yeah. in terms of people who are, who are trained to teach yoga, there's gotta be at least 10,000. So it's a really different yeah, scene I think now. I think we should, I think we should just, if you're, uh, if you're out there listening, I think what you should do is every time you see somebody with a yoga mat, just stop and say hi and say, do you practice yoga? And you'll meet a friend. Yeah, yeah. If you're brave. Yeah, exactly. And it's not dark. And why and not? Not surrounded by chain That's the one of the whole point of yoga is to just. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Columbia Heights does not look like that now. Nope. Um, so at what point did you kind of say to yourself, all right, uh, I'm done with the whole hustling thing for the environment. And I mean, that sounds bad, but you still <laughs> care about the environment. You didn't give up on the environment. What time, at what point were you like, okay, 
going to stop this hustle and I'm just going to kind of teach yoga instead. All right. Well, let's give the planet a shout out. Yes, exactly. We are all here. We're all breathing oxygen uh, because of this like really extraordinary miracle that has uh, converged into this very moment. And we lose sight of that. And in my own life, and I don't know how much of this was because I had the great privilege of growing up in the countryside and now I've been kind of urbanized for many years, but um, I, I really do feel that we as humans have gotten more and more disconnected as a generalization mm-hmm. and um, to the planet around us. And so I just really believe that part of the future of our our truest yoga is staying honest with our impact on the planet, on not just ourselves, our truest ahimsa, is which is nonviolence, is to really be in remembrance of the gifts of this planet every single day. So had to do that shout out. Um, the nuts and bolts of it were in my 20s. I, I mean, it was just jumping job to job a lot, not necessarily by choice, but uh, I moved to D.C. literally like six days after 9-11, maybe even five days. Yeah. And it was the weekend after that I moved up here and it was a scary time. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And a lot of the funding for foundations was just like on hold because some of it was going towards these more like uh, patriotic type things or like um, like trying to reduce energy dependence on the Middle East. It was, it was very complex, like financial dynamics in those couple years, recession. So I think that had an inadvertent impact on my life and because of that unsteadiness I ended up like temping to hire Mm -hmm. with a really cool organization called the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law and I worked on their environmental justice campaign so after Katrina we were doing all of this um, uh, assistance with uh, essentially helping people get toxins out of their homes Mm -hmm. and be able to live in their homes again and that the position I had there was like I was like a legal secretary and I just felt kind of like very excited about the work and and you know very impressed by the people that I worked with but very um uh, if you've ever been a paralegal like I think this is a pretty common thing where you have like seven attorneys that you answer to mm-hmm. that's really that's not right. really fun <laughs> it's not especially for somebody who considers themselves like a teacher and an expert and an older sibling yeah. <laughs> it's like why am I being told what to do by seven different people so I um I injured my shoulder that year and went to see a physical therapist and was like, bam, that's what I want to do. And so it was a little bit of a carrot, a little bit of a stick that I was sort of in a shifting state anyway. And I found something that for whatever reason I got really glammed onto. And I think the reason why I really wanted to do it because all of those years of teaching yoga at that point, let's call it seven years of teaching or six years of teaching where I was just, I was under it all, pretty insecure about what I was teaching. How come? Because when somebody says to you, when you're, first of all, when you're in your 20s, and you're, at the time, I think a lot of the studentship was in their 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s. So people had bodies that had experiences, and my body didn't have a lot of experiences. So I didn't understand a lot of the things they were telling me. Um, I didn't understand what to say to somebody when they said, well, I had, I just had my knee scoped, or I had a hip replacement, or... I'm like one lady was missing a tailbone and I just didn't know what to say or do to anybody. And so I was really interested in alignment, really interested in the therapeutic component of yoga, really interested in, in, um, 
helping people in a deep sense and recognizing how limited my toolbox was. Yeah. And that's what got me that and my own injuries, my own experience with injuries is what got me into physical therapy. That's kind of interesting. So even at the health clubs and everything, the, the people who are actually taking the yoga, it wasn't what we see today? No, sir. Mm-mm. Actually, Sport and Health Camry at the time in 2001, when I first started teaching there in 2002, it was a fancy, fancy gym. Mm-hmm. There was marble floors. This is not the one that is uh, north of the Whole Foods. This is the one that is that is in the old Fannie Mae building. Mm-hmm. And um, I believe it's like this, I'm, although I'm not 100% sure. They had an indoor pool. They had a hot tub. They had an indoor track. Like for wow. 2001, well they for were a city the gym to have an indoor track. That's, that's pretty impressive, actually. They were the ish. Yeah. That's, I mean, but that's really cool because um, we've seen, I mean, we've seen such a, a different demographic shift to mm-hmm. what we see in yoga classes today. Although I, w- I would put in there that if you go to a class at Vita, and I can't speak for the other gyms, mm-hmm. um, there's a, a wide variety of ages and body types. It's yeah. not just sort of what you see at the, you know, maybe your local yoga studio. Yeah. Um, which is one of the reasons why I like teaching at a gym too. Um, so it was your injury was kind of the best thing that happened to you. Hmm. Could be. <laughs> or at least, you know, it was, it's one of those things. I always like to tell my students that, um, uh, yoga really isn't about good or bad. It's about experiences that you have yeah, uh, and what you take from those experiences and what opportunities you get from those experiences. Yeah. Um, because something could be bad today, like a shoulder injury, but. 15 years later, when you're a successful, you know, physical therapist and anatomy teacher and yoga teacher, it could have been like a good thing, right? Yeah, for whatever reason, it set me off on this path. And um, it's been a, it's been a wild ride. And it's I, I, I thank you for calling me successful. I still feel like I have just so many balls up in the air that I'm trying to figure out where to land them all. And um, hopefully they will they'll find a home. But yeah, I do feel really good about the the type of knowledge that I have that I can share. I feel really good about the way that my patients get better. I feel really good about the the perspective that I have. Did yeah. you so did you then go to um, when you went to do your physical therapy degree? Was that like a nighttime thing? Was that a full time thing that you went and did? I don't think there's a single physical therapy school that is a night school. Is that right? I don't think so. So it was full time. Like it is full time, full yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit more about my background, but I had gone to a liberal arts undergraduate and Hampshire College, and Hampshire College, we yay. did not have any um, like majors there. So it was really free form. Big L liberal arts college. Big L, yeah, yeah, aka hippie school. (laughs) So I was a certified HIPPIE, and I did not have um, very many of the prereqs. But even if I had, it had already uh, more than five years had lapsed since graduation. And for the most part, for physical therapy school, you need to have taken anatomy and physiology within the last five years. Like they don't play. So I had to do a year and a half of prereqs prerequisites. So I actually had to quit my job a year before starting physical therapy school. And the semester before that, I was in night school in addition to my full-time job. So I think a lot of people look at what I have done and they are like, oh, I want that. And I'm not sure that they really want the sacrifice that I've done to get here because I was literally in university nine and a half years, Yeah. period. So yes, I have a doctorate. Um, 
another thing I think people don't realize is once you're in physical therapy school, you are, it's a three-year year-round program. So like law school, you get the summers to do your internships. <laughs> That's right. And yeah. they guide you towards, you know, s y actually you could theoretically take the summers off, I believe, in, in law school. But mm -hmm. like physical therapy school is year-round. So there's, it's no joke. Um, so, um, yeah, it was a, an immense sacrifice and it's, it's not something to be taken lightly. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I constantly, um, not constantly, but I think often about my own job and what I do now. And mm -hmm. I have lots of other side interests. One of them is being history. Mm. Um, and I always kind of thought about, well, I want to go back to school and like study, you know, original texts and like, um, you know, maybe write something about a historical period. And then like I also like, like you just mentioned, I think about the actual sacrifice of that. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, maybe I can just get the same thing reading a book. <laughs> you know, I, obviously you can't do the thing, same thing with physical therapy, mm -hmm. but for history, you know, you can just read like historical texts and yeah. get like, you know, kind of get what you need without having to, you know, study 14 hours a day in a library, like pouring over ancient languages that you don't understand or at least try to understand. Yeah. yeah. And relative to 12 years ago, um, I think that there's so much more information available at our fingertips including historical information you can literally take like mass online classes and mm -hmm. take deep specialized history classes online for free probably from stanford or wherever and you can also you can't do that for physical therapy but there's a lot of really good and also a lot of really bad more bad than good um information out there on on build on on some of the knowledge that overlaps with like orthopedic physical therapy so strength training and neuromuscular re-education and just exercise science. And did you did you have a focus when you were in physical therapy school? You can't focus in PT school. Ah. That's that's another thing. So if you want to come out of PT school, you're you're a newbie newbie. You're a generalist. And so then you have to do like an internship. You have to do is it sort of like medical school? Where you have to do an internship. You have to do like a you know fellowship or something like that. Yeah. So there's three. So, so there's clinicals within your physical therapy program. There's a lot of shadowing of physical therapists and gradually taking over their jobs. So it's you're literally working full time towards the end of your for no pay, actually to pay tuition towards the end of your physical therapy schooling. Um, but um, so you can learn like m I had five clinicals, some have three in the in my five clinicals. I got to experience I, um, a, a, a meaningful amount of diverse outpatient like orthopedic and ortho neuro mixes. So that means that I, I I was more comfortable probably in that setting, but I also had a lot of experience hands-on because I worked at National Rehab Hospital as before I was a physical therapist, so I also had a lot of uh, experience with the inpatient neuro-heavy side of things, like stroke patients, SCI, spinal cord injury, so. And then but I would, I even today I don't say I'm a specialist, I'm a general um, orthopedic uh, physical therapist, and I can go into some specialties and I can do residencies if I choose to. I personally haven't done that. I, I became a PT much later than most people, much later in life than most people become a physical therapist. I was already in my 30s. And so to, ancient. to <laughs> not, <laughs> not so ancient, <laughs> but to go back and, and spend a year like taking a, you know, another, another year of, I guess, financial sacrifice, et cetera. It's just, you have to really, really 
consider the trade-offs and I don't do physical therapy full-time so I do that maybe uh, 25 hours a week at, at this moment in time and um, and so the trade-off becomes less if that's not your your only gig mm-hmm. now would you were you teaching yoga throughout your throughout the entire time you were in yeah. Yeah. yeah what was the what was the most classes you ever ever were teaching like at a time well probably week? wouldn't have been like on my regular schedule but I was probably I probably like you know, when I was between jobs, like subbed up to fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, that's a that's a lot. I was never one of those people who had like twenty classes every single week for weeks on end or yeah. anything like that. Y- you don't want to be. No, but it's pretty wild. Like I would, I was willing to make those sacrifices in my twenties. Get up at five in the morning and go to bed at nine, or not. I wouldn't go to bed at nine thirty. I would go to bed later, but I would teach till nine thirty. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and now I'm like, mm, if my classes can start at noon <laughs> and yeah, at exactly. six i'm happy mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah did you ever along the way think to yourself okay like i'm doing this yoga thing um i want to teach something else like pilates for example mm-hmm. or for or like you know whatever kickboxing or you know something besides some other movement specialty besides yoga yeah so back when i was teaching at the gym i would pretty regularly sub pilates yeah. Yeah, and that was because well, probably still to this day there's not enough Pilates teachers. And True. for for most like gym settings and um and I was I guess bold enough to just throw my hat in the ring and just be like, yeah, I'll do my best. It, in terms of being a sub, like I didn't have um I, I didn't, gosh, it, it wasn't like I was trying to do something that I wasn't qualified to do. It was like I was helping out the, the business that I worked for where I was an employee. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I would do that regularly, and it wasn't a really big deal. And s- some gyms may still be like that, I think, particularly in more rural places, but probably in more urban places these days, they're a little more specific about who gets to teach what and who gets to label what. But recently, I was uh, just last summer... I was really, you know, I've been having this like existential crisis on yoga for years now, years on end. But I, last summer I was like, you know what? What I really want to teach is functional fitness. Mm-hmm. And so I proposed that to my gym. I'm going to give a shout out to Mint Gym. I love that gym right now. Yeah. And um, they allowed me to teach a class called functional fitness. It started in January. So it's only been going on eight weeks or so and I'm still figuring out what the heck I'm doing but I made up my own class format and just I'm going for it and I'm completely qualified because that's literally what we do as physical therapists like we have to document function left right up down mm-hmm. so I've yeah yeah that's so funny cool. you asked no that's cool um yeah it's, it's interesting when I you know because I teach Pilates as well and um I would by no means consider myself an anatomy or a Pilates expert um but I frequently get clients who come in and they tell me oh well i've got x y and z you know problem and you know i'll start doing something you know with them on the pilates reformer or on the cadillac or some other you know apparatus and they'll go you know i did the same thing with my physical therapist (laughs) they go i'm like good i'm on the right track then well as a pt (laughs) i do not own a reformer but um but the but the yeah. movements you know to yeah. to get you know flexibility with strength and you know different ranges of motion is you know yeah. it's going to be similar th- depending on what injury you have you know 
So there's a lot of crossover, and there has been for decades in, in the different movement modalities. Physical therapists um, are really influenced by osteopathy. We're very influenced by, uh, we somewhat influenced by massage therapy and vice versa. Uh, influenced by, of course, occupational therapy, which is kind of like a sister mm -hmm. profession. And, um, and yeah, that there's... There's a lot of movement educators who, who you know, we have overlap with to some extent. Mm -hmm. I want to, this is actually what one of the things I really want to talk about, which is the difference between a physical therapist and a, like, a movement educator of any sort. Yeah. Um, because I do think that there's some conflicting information out there. Uh, one, I think in general, and this is true of both medical professional, medical doctors, as well as us as individual humans, I think many of us, we for we underestimate how valuable physical therapists are. And I'm not saying this to brush my own shoulders off. I'm saying this because I myself have been like miraculously amazed by physical therapy. Like moments where I thought like somebody was going to have to take a knife to my you know limb, uh, as in a surgeon, um, that I would, uh, that that like things felt so bad that mm -hmm. then were, like through very simple conservative measures improved or ameliorated completely. So physical therapists are walking miracle workers in my humble opinion. And I, I'm not even talking about myself really. I'm talking about like the, the ones that I have been exposed to. So I think that in general there's an undervaluing of physical therapists on every level in our medical institution. Like we could have, I, I really truly believe like played a much more a very big role in preventing the opioid crisis, maybe not the only thing that's hard to go up against marketing and multi-billion dollar um, companies, but that's a whole other conversation. But um, but yeah, I mean, we're underutilized. Like how many times have you gone to the doctor and been like, I've got back pain or I've got knee pain and, and they'll be like, have you tried ibuprofen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and it's just like, actually uh, the last time, hello, we're here. Actually, the last time I went to the doctor and I had back pain, mm -hmm. uh, he gave me a um, a script telling me I needed to do more core work. So, but was it physical therapy or was it just like? No, he told me I needed to go to physical therapy and do okay. more core work. Good. So medical doctors are better, and I think they're better in like an urban environment when w when they know that their their population can get to physical therapists. Um, but I really feel for people who don't have easy access to physical therapists who are more in rural areas. And also people who are on budgets, et cetera. But like, well, there's a will, there's a way. It's and it's worth it. Like, you only get one body, and there's simple things you can do. Let me say this: that one last bit on this is that the um, the way that we treat our teeth, like we go to the dentist every six months for our teeth, right? So we get the fluoride and the cleaning, and the, they'll like floss our teeth for us, which is oh, the weirdest thing. And I love that. You love it. Like well, I was actually at the dentist on Thursday, and I was so I kind of almost asked the tech. I was sort of like, "Can I, can I take you home? <laughs> like I'd like you to do this for me tonight." Like I love that. I d you just lay on your back and you open your mouth and they floss your teeth for you. It's I fantastic. Wish I wish I could have been there so that I could have great. translated and said, "I swear to you, Chris is not being creepy right no, now." Exactly. I was. I, I just said it in the most like He's so genuine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> He's not a creepster. Um, they might not have known, you know? Yeah. But yeah. so we go to the dentist every six months, and that's ingrained in us. And we don't go to the physical therapist every six months. Well, guess what? Our mouth is really important. I'm not going to deny that. 
and our entire freaking body is really important too. How many people just live with TMJ issues? How many people just live with wrist pain? How many people just live with hip pain or live with back pain? So find a PT, and if you don't like the first one you go to, find another one, and you know, think about it like a dentist. If you need somebody who you can go back to regular for life, like just for the, the tune-up, I call it outsourcing. Like lots of people outsource their, you know, their laundry these days, right? Like they pay somebody to do all the folding and whatnot. Not not a lot of people, but some people do. And um, you know, we don't outsource to the experts for some more complicated things. And it's it's important. Uh, that that's the role of that. I think is really important to say on a yoga podcast, on a movement educator podcast, that um, especially with movement educators who are using their bodies for life. Like make a friend with a PT and and find somebody you can go to again and again and again. And if it finances are an issue, just ask, just ask, right? Like so where there's a will, there's a way. So um, the other thing I wanted to say is that I see a lot of, uh, I it's both good and it there's a little asterisk next to it. I see a lot of movement educators moving into a space that has, has historically been occupied by physical therapists. Mm. And um, I'll give you an example. So today I was looking at Instagram and I saw an image of or a video of um, somebody moving a skeleton, right? And, and they were like rocking the skeleton up and down. And in the caption it said something like, if your pelvis doesn't move, the, like one of the first things you need to get happening in your body is that you need your pelvis to move. And if your pelvis doesn't move, then your pelvic floor therapist isn't, isn't considering your whole body or something along those lines. And I was reading this and I was like, well, what is the measure? So here's where like my mind goes. What is the measurement for your quote unquote pelvis moving? And is it the pelvis moving on the lumbar spine or on the hips? Or is it the pelvis moving within itself? The sacroiliac joints, the um, pubic symphysis. And how do you measure? And there's more than one, frankly, because there's a lot of parts there. Uh, so, and then is that measurement actually like, does it have uh, significance? Is it, has it been studied? Is there statistical significance that shows that two different sets of eyeballs, your eyeballs and my eyeballs, can look at that measurement and 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 be kind of um, within the same numeric set, mm -hmm. and 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 then to kind of like put a side disc to pelvic floor physical therapists just because <laughs> they aren't doing the entire body at the same time that they're also you know sometimes triaging really major pelvic floor things. It's just, a it's sort of like, there's so many layers that I have been trained in because quite frankly, I have a license on the line. I have um, nine and a half years of university education on the line that I think other people just say things that they, you know, nobody's overlooking them. No license is over top of them. And it's not that, like at the fundamental heart of it, it's not a bad thing to say like your pelvis has to be able to move for the rest of your body to be able to move well. Like that's kind of basic in a way. It, there's nothing wrong with that statement. But there's so many layers that I think through as a clinician that I think that when we start to kind of bow down and worship these people who are like putting this, this kind of um, partial information out there that we're really losing sight of of our role as movement, as movement mm -hmm. educators, perhaps. And it's something, it's actually feeds into why as a yoga teacher, and, and there's a million different uh, approaches to this, and there's no right or wrong. But as a yoga teacher, I stopped asking about injuries. 
in yoga class. And the reason I particularly stopped is because, not because I don't want people to inform me, but one, there's always that limitation when I teach that a lot of people don't share and it's actually important to share. Mm -hmm. So one, I was finding that I was getting a lot of um, noise, meaning like, hey, I have a headache today, so I might just like, you know, not spend too much time in down dog. I'm like, mm, I don't really need to know that or something along those lines. Right. Um, and then other others were like after class, oh, like I had my entire shoulder replaced a year ago and this was my first class back. And I'm like, what? what? You could have told me when I asked. So I was finding that it was n not getting the noise or sorry, I was getting too much noise and not enough like real content. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I, I was af I was and would still be afraid that I would be conveying this impression that I could fix people through yoga. Exactly. As uh, with my license, with my physical therapy doctorate, like people might look at me and be like, oh, she's asking about injuries. Well, let me see what she can do to fix me in the next 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. So I stopped asking about injuries now. I don't actually think that's a good thing for a new teacher to stop asking about injuries. I think it's a good thing for newer teachers to ask. But in my particular circumstance, I don't think it's so good. And, and then that plays into, like, what is my role as a yoga teacher? And really putting boundaries on that. My role is not to fix anybody. My role is not to, you know, my role is there to teach and to throw out things that you get to try on for your own body. And then you get to be the expert in your body. And if you ever need more one-on-one -on -one expertise, you know who to call. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a great way to play it. Yeah, I've stopped. I don't. I don't ask about injuries either uh, before class. However, I will be receptive if students come up and say, "Hey, you know, just so you know, I have this injury. So if you see me doing something different than what you're saying, like don't you know, don't come over and like jam me into a position." You yeah. Know? Um, and that I really, I really do respect. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, if you're a yoga teacher, this happens all the time after class. People be like, "Oh, I've got this pain in my knee." Did you go see your doctor? Yeah, good like, question. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the pain in your knee is like, um, but you know, and that's part of sort of um, the mystique of being a yoga teacher, right? That I think the yoga industry loves to promote, which is this sort of like mysticism mm -hmm. of yoga, um, and as it being you know a panacea for everything that's wrong with you, um, and it just it kind of has to stop. You know, yoga, yoga, yoga is very simple. Mm -hmm. It is not mystical. Mm -hmm. Like in its in its very very definition, yoga is very simple. Right? We're talking about either either of two things: stilling the movement of the mind, um, or a connection with God or the eternal or the one. Mm -hmm. Right? And these now, how you get there has many many different faces. Um, but it isn't, it isn't, you know, yogis, we got to stop this, like, walking around, like, thinking yogis wear, like, white robes and have flowing hair and are just, like, you know, are above us. The guru thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that, that's not, that's not to me what yoga is about. Um, and maybe you disagree, but. Um, no, I, I completely agree. I, I would say that it, it I, I'd, I'd say that my understanding of the word mystical is that it's like about that individual experience. Like I could have a mystical experience, but I don't know that collectively a, gr a group of 20 people could, could say that they're all having a mystical experience sure. unless they're under an influence of some medicine or drug because, um, because it's such an individual thing. Yeah, and you can have the mystical experience, yeah. but me as the yoga instructor, 
I'm not responsible for giving you that experience. Exactly. You've done it all yourself. Exactly. And that's what people have to understand. Like that's where it comes from. It comes from inside always. I've been reading the literature on psychedelics and how important set and setting is in psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And there's a big push to be moving towards the direction of um, legalizing or at least creating uh, a medicinal pathway for psychedelics to help people with very specific Mm -hmm. ailments. Um, And so I'm just, you know, a bystander on that whole thing, just watching it from the outside in. But a lot of the conversations around what is a mystical experience. And I think that as yoga teachers, exactly, like we're not the drug. Right. We're not um, uh, even necessarily dosing people. Right. Our job is... We're not the dealer either. We're not the dealer. We're not the drug. We are the set and the setting very often. So we're about creating uh, the conditions under which someone can have a yoga yogic experience. Yeah. And and um, I don't mean to equate yoga with drugs, <laughs> but uh, so that's not what I'm trying to do here, but I but the word set and setting came to mind yeah. because you can have a mystical experience in a yoga class. You can have a mystical experience on LSD. You can have a mystical experience, but you're not going to have a a good experience very often if the set and the setting are wrong. So yeah, I think we're vibing like the exact same thing. It's that simple. It's set and setting. Mm-hmm. And I and I have had mystical experiences in yoga. In other, and the way I describe, the way I define mystical is something that, like a miracle, mm-hmm. like something you can't explain, Ineffable. right? A, f- a feel, yeah, a feeling that you have that this is right, and I ought to be at this point in this point in time and in this moment, and it just feels good. Yeah. Um and. Uh, and for that, you know, that's that's totally going to be um, your hard work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of people think that if you just walk into a yoga class and you do everything the teacher says, you're going to walk out feeling like floating on air. And that's not the point. The point is you go into a class and you do hard work, right? You do the hard work. Yeah. Um, so people, if you think, if you think yoga is easy, you know, if you can, sure. If you're if you're hyper flexible already and you walk into a yoga class and it may seem really easy and you're just kind of flopping your joints around and great but you know then it's just sort of stretching <laughs> right um and um, hard work is the stilling of the thought waves of the mind exactly yeah. exactly and it could not be any more simple or more difficult mm-hmm. <laughs> bingo um so uh talk about maybe the difference between so and I, you mentioned this before in one of our because you do you do the anatomy section from my teacher training and you mentioned this one time, I don't know if it was last year or was this year, where you went through a phase um, where you thought it was your responsibility, sort of your responsibility to correct um, the imbalances of people who are sitting in chairs all day long. So that mm. you taught your classes based on getting, stretching, creating the range of motion and the muscle stretches for people that were just sort of sitting all day. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that stuck with me is because I'm sort of going through that phase myself. Yeah. Um, so I wanted maybe to see if you could talk a little about that, expand a little bit, because to give you some background, so what I do in my classes is I start classes with a lot of like lunges with blocks to help extend, um, to help stretch out hip flexor muscles, mm-hmm. right? Because um, they've been in actin, they've been in action all day mm-hmm. um, to get those lengthened and then do lots of back bends to sort of reverse the effects of sitting around a keyboard and opening up chest muscles and, you know, developing strength in those muscles as well as stretching them, getting movement in those areas. Um, and I see that as, like, very effective um, 
but I was wondering about that because you made that statement. I'm thinking, am I, am I doing something right? Like, what am I doing wrong here? Oh, thank you so much for this question. I love um, that you're being super open-minded about it. And also, thank you for having me teach the anatomy section of your teacher training. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things. The first thing I want to say is that, one, it's sometimes really awkward to teach the anatomy section of teacher trainings these days because, you know, I might say things that the main trainers don't agree with. And I just have to put that out there that, like, it's it's a sign of a really just really open-minded teacher training faculty that they're going to bring me on, uh, even though some of the things I say may go against the grain of some of the things they teach. And that's just, I think, that existential crisis I mentioned earlier of yoga, mm -hmm. like, that's what we're all sitting in right now. So what do we do with this practice that has evolved into looking a certain way? And that we fall in love with, by the way. And how do we integrate it with what we know about movement science? And how do we integrate it with um, what we know to be the heart of yoga, which is this really simple thing? So that's a big task that you and Julia have taken on. And thank you for doing that. <laughs> and thank you for being open-minded enough to have me on, you know, as an adjunct faculty or whatever. Yeah. So um, the second thing I want to say is that Year over year over year, my teaching has evolved. And if I were to go way back to the beginning, so 2001 to 2002 to 2003, I was just building more and more creative ideas. I was learning and understanding vinyasa more and how that could layer on to the compassionate approach of Kripalu. And um, when I moved out of D.C. back to Richmond, Virginia, my hometown, to go to graduate school, I was exposed to an extraordinary studio down there that had a lot of Iyengar and yoga work uh, influence. And those teachers had like the best alignment cues on the planet. I mean, they were just like amazing bosses. And so then my, uh, my teaching became a lot more alignment oriented and that was, you know, meshing well with my physical therapy studies. And then I studied Anusara because I didn't want to go down this like uh, geometric alignment route 100%. And Anusara was this nice poetic thing that um, was with really community-based with alignment. Yeah. yeah. And then that kind of crashed down in the midst of my 108-hour Anusara immersion. And it's kind of like, what's next? And so then I, I did end up finding a 300-hour that was ba rooted in that yoga works tradition without the yoga works label to it. Um, and so for a couple years after that, I was really teaching like the concept of peak poses. So, and mm -hmm. that made a lot of sense to me because that training had allowed me, that training and the Anusara training had allowed me to like unlock what I thought were impossible physical feats in my, in my body. Um, and so that was really empowering in a certain way. And now I'm really interested less in what anything looked like and more in this concept of function. And that's one of the reasons why I'm challenging myself to teach this functional fitness class. And um, my teaching, just in summary, every year, year over year, year over year, has evolved and changed. And I've got a whole library of YouTube videos that are about two to three years old now. And I might not agree with what some of them say from a couple years ago. So yeah. I want to put that out there. Like, I might even contradict myself, what I've said historically. And I think that's a sign. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's a sign of just, like, being open-minded. And that's a good thing. Um, and that things might change in a year. So 
what you're getting to the heart of is is a little bit of this functional fitness. So how can we take the fact that you and I right now we're sitting recording this are in a passive stretch to our glutes mm -hmm. and maybe a little bit to our lumbar musculature and we're doing this for let's say an hour right now. So how do we take that and then and do something that complements it kind of like a counter pose. Mm -hmm. That's a concept from yoga. And um I think most of us have been indoctrinated to some extent in the yoga world on, at least historically, we've been indoctrinated to believe that we can stretch it out. That sh like stretching our body is kind of like opening your mind. It's sort of like I'm saying open being open-minded is a good thing. And also we have been indoctrinated to think that the quote unquote open body is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So what I'm playing with now is, and it's not really, it's common sense in the physical therapy world and it's becoming more understood in the yoga world, but slowly but surely it's going to take a long time to like really flip over the whole deck of cards so to speak um that the idea of passive stretching is probably not particularly useful now as a physical therapist there are occasions where i might uh, prescribe a passive stretch but it's it's gotten more and more and more rare mm -hmm. and the more i learn the more i understand that to counter a passive stretch you really need to strengthen. Yeah. So rather than um, back bends, just pure back bends for, uh, for countering sitting, which is kind of what I was thinking for a, a phase of my teaching career, I would encourage glute strengthening. So active hip extension, mm -hmm. active lumbar extension. Yeah, like salambasana, like locust yep. pose. Then locust that's pose, and that's yeah. exactly what I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I have a whole, I have yeah. a whole thing on on posterior chain strengthening. I actually have yeah. an audio course you can take on yoganatomyacademy.com. I have some free YouTube classes on posterior chain awakening, either on my my regular YouTube channel or my Yoga Anatomy Academy YouTube channel. So like, there's tons of good information out there. But yeah, that I think is really much more important. What I has, what I see a lot is um, just hip weakness in general, in the general population, and surprisingly, surprising levels of hip weakness in the yoga population. And this is something that Pilates does really well, is Pilates actually targets in their sideline series mm -hmm. a lot of just tremendous stuff for the hips. So I'm shouting out Pilates, um, but walking could also be counterbalance to sitting. And, um, and I think, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm curious to, to hear how that has landed on you because I've said a lot right now. Yeah, no, no, that's, I mean, that's, mm -hmm. so um, that that's, ex that's exactly sort of uh, what I was looking for. Um, uh, I also agree that um, uh, passive stretching is not as useful as functional range of motion. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, uh, I don't know where I picked it up. Maybe it was from you, maybe it's from someone else. There's a big difference between, oh, it's from Michael Joel Hall actually. A um, big difference between doing hand to toe pose uh -huh. where you grab your toe and you get a hamstring stretch and doing hand to toe pose where you're actually using your hip flexor muscle to keep your foot up there. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't do you a whole lot of good in other words if the minute you let go of your big toe, your foot falls to the floor. Mm -hmm. However, if the minute you let go of your toe, your foot stays in the same place, 
well, then we've found something that's beneficial for your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I've started to do is teach my classes that way where the range of motion is only important, um, and this is what I picked up from you, the range of motion is only important if we can get strength at that end range of motion throughout the range of motion. Yeah. Right, that's, that's where we need to, to find right the strength. Exactly, yeah, that's something I've been preaching for years, and I would say that it didn't automatically translate for me in my own understanding and my own body and my own teaching, but it's uh, it's landed more and more. Well, sure, because yeah. it, it just feels fucking good to like take a strap and put it around your foot and <laughs> jack your hamstring up. Like, it can feel really, really good. I can't you say know? that I've ever really enjoyed that one, but <laughs> yeah, for, I know what you mean. Yeah, like uh, yeah. Uh, a pose that I just, you know, last time I did it was maybe four months ago or something, six months ago, was uh, compass pose. So compass pose is major inner thigh, hamstring stretch. It has essentially, let's say, zero function whatsoever at all. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm a lot stronger in certain ways than I used to be. So I, I can do a lot of that shape without passive leveraging. But at the end, it's a pretty shape that does require some passive leveraging. And so um, that's a decision that I consciously made. I remember making this photograph like do I want to do this shape it's I it may not be the best thing for my body and I, I made this conscious decision like yeah I'm gonna do it. I love this I'm gonna you know I may not I may change my mind in the future and I haven't done it since but like yeah I did it so um yeah these these things are gonna change and evolve and that's a good thing mm-hmm. yeah and I think you we just can't no matter what you can't underemphasize or overemphasize the importance of strengthening period strength 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 i mean our bodies were evolved to be pretty much in constant motion uh with the exception of sleep and even maybe in sleep we had two sleeps because we would get up in the middle of the night and check on things and now we're so sedentary the Mm -hmm. the concept of sedentarism that we are in this sedentary culture and um we just need to train ourselves to get out of it as best as we can so yoga is serving a powerful powerful um role in that for many many people and it's very diverse in what we do and we're barefoot which is amazing so many so much strength training happens with shoes on and it's just like you're missing out Mm -hmm. on a lot which is another thing i do in my functional fitness class i make people take their shoes off halfway through yes if you're at vita though Mm -hmm. wear your shoes do not work out in bare feet just saying that. Oh, okay. I, uh, yeah. No, right. <laughs> People do this all the time at my gym. They like they'll do squats and bare feet, and as cl- awesome as that is, uh-huh. like please just put your shoes on. <laughs> is it smelly? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just yeah, it's a gym policy. <laughs> oh, it's a gym policy. Yeah, okay. So like just put your shoes well, on. <laughs> if my gym has that policy, I don't know it yet. So no. um, I'm gonna feign ignorance. No, I'm sure in a group class it's fine. Just on the gym floor, it's all like yeah. 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 Although yeah. I've been guilty of it myself the other night. Um, Okay, so we got to wrap up. Yeah. Go ahead and lay, a, lay us or give us uh, an idea of where we can find you on the web or resources and all that stuff. I am everywhere and anywhere. I am at sacredsourceyoga.com. That's my personal website. I'm actually going to change it eventually, but I haven't figured out what that will be yet. So sacredsourceyoga.com, yogaanatomyacademy.com. I actually run a 12-week, 12-module, I should say, because you can be in it forever online mentorship for yoga anatomy there and that is the bee's knees i have lots of audio downloads you can get from there i run a facebook group called just yoga for those with hypermobility and ehlers danlos because that's kind of a, a nerd topic that i'm interested in um i have a physical therapy practice here in dc uh, right across from the zoo and i have um 
I also see yoga private clients and movement clients there. I teach weekly classes here in DC and I'm gonna be in Baltimore next weekend teaching two workshops. I'm gonna be in Destin, Florida the following weekend, April 13th, 12th to 14th actually, um, teaching some really cool sequencing workshops. I'm really excited. I'm gonna be in Richmond, Virginia, April 27th. I'm gonna be um, back in DC teaching a workshop May 17th, advanced sequencing for complex poses and arm balances. So if you're trying to nail handstand and you're just like, what am I doing wrong? I got some gems for you. I've got um, uh, a Memorial Day yoga retreat. I'm gonna be in Northampton in June, Northampton, Massachusetts, and I'm gonna be in at the Omega Institute in September. And I have a fascia release for yoga course with Yoga Journal. And that's a really tremendous six module course that couples fascia release with yoga. So if you feel really stiff or if you're looking for something that is an alternative to passive stretching, fascia release is mm. it. And I have a um, coming up in the next couple weeks, I'll be putting my Way of the Happy Fascia course online. That's going to be really, really cool. Oh, I like that name. It's so it's such that's a, a great good name. workshop. Yeah. It always sells out when I s when I do it live. And um, I have, oh my God, I, I even have more than that, free YouTube channels and, um, oh, one other thing. I have a, a course called How to Pay for Your Yoga Teacher Training. So that's sort of like, I, I think I, I give that to all that. of your graduates. I give that to all of your graduates for your program. If they don't have the freebie yeah. link, I'll send it to them. It was just an oversight if they didn't. But that's on udemy.com. And that's like just an hour and a half of like, all my little nuggets of experience. It's actually a really casual course. It's not anything super formal, but like it's just tons of nuggets of experience and you can email me and ask me direct questions within that. And um, I think it just drops some common sense on folks who are kind of being indoctrinated with like the weight of trying to pay and recover the thousands of dollars that they dropped on, on their yoga teacher training and how to reconcile that. So shoot me an email, Arielle, A-R-I-E-L-E, at sacredsourceyoga.com. If you can't find that information, anything that I said on the internet, you can reach out to me. Awesome. That sounds great. It's so good to have you here, Ariel. Oh, it is a complete, total honor to be here. Uh, thank you so much for doing this fun, yeah. fun activity. Chris. We'll get you back on soon. I don't think we asked any of the questions that were on my sheet in front of me, but so we'll, we'll get you back on and we'll get to those. Fun, <laughs> fun times. All right. So you've been listening to the DC Yoga Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Parkinson. Uh, until next time, uh, have a good weekend and take care. Bye.